Hello, and welcome back to the Rewatch Rewind. My name is Jane, and this is the podcast where I count down my top 40 most frequently rewatched movies in a 20-year period. Today, I will be discussing number 23 on my list, Paramount Pictures' 1942 comedy The Major and the Minor, directed by Billy Wilder, written by Charles Brackett and Billy Wilder, suggested by a play by Edward Childs Carpenter from a story by Fanny Kilburn, and starring Ginger Rogers and Ray Milland. Fed up after a year in New York, approximately 30-year-old Susan Applegate, Ginger Rogers, decides to return home to Stevenson, Iowa. Unfortunately, train fare has increased significantly since she arrived in New York, and she doesn't have enough saved for a ticket home. Desperate, she disguises herself as a child, turning 12 next week, so she can get a half-fare ticket. After she's on the train, the conductors get suspicious, so she hides in the drawing room of Military Academy instructor Major Philip Kirby, Raymond who completely believes that she's a child in trouble and lets her stay in his compartment overnight. In the morning, the train has been stopped due to flooding near Phillips Station, so his fiancée, Pamela Hill, Rita Johnson, drives to the train to pick him up. Finding a woman in his compartment, Pamela assumes that Philip has cheated on her and storms away before he has a chance to explain. So Susan, or Susu as she decides it would be more childlike to go by, accompanies Philip to his school to clear up the misunderstanding, and gets caught up in more drama there. This was the very first movie I wrote down in 2003 when I decided to start keeping track of the movies I watched. I'm pretty sure I'd seen it before because I remember getting it from the library very early in my foray into old Hollywood, and it had quickly become one of my favorites. I saw it three times in 2003, once in 2004, twice in 2005, once in 2006, once in each year from 2008 through 2011, twice in 2012, then once each in 2013, 2014, 2018, 2020, 2021, and 2022. Given that I was around Susu's age the first time I watched it, and I'm now older than Ginger Rogers was when she filmed it, my perception of this movie has understandably evolved. As an actual 12-year-old, I mostly watched it just to make fun of the adults who clearly had no memory of what it was like to be 12, and to remind myself to stay in touch with my child self so I would never get to that point. I'm pretty sure I've succeeded in that. As I got slightly older, I started recognizing and appreciating how well-developed the characters are for such a silly movie. I remember as an older teen really wanting a sequel or a series or some other way to just keep hanging out with these characters. And as an adult, I'm still discovering new layers to the story and message. So I don't think I will ever get tired of rewatching it. As I'm sure you've already concluded from my synopsis, this movie has one of the most bizarre plots ever and absolutely would not be made today. I promise it is way better than it sounds, but parts of it are very disturbing if you think about them too hard. In particular, there's a scene when Philip walks into a faculty meeting, which Pamela is also attending along with her father, who is the head of the academy, as he's about to be fired in disgrace and reveals that the woman that Pamela found in his compartment is a 12-year-old girl. Everybody is so relieved because clearly that implies that nothing improper happened, which is very much what should be implied and is accurate in this case. Still, I feel like hearing, yes, darling, I spent the night with another woman, but don't worry, it's okay because she's only 12, would not actually be very reassuring. It's also incredibly strange that not a single adult in this film, with the possible exception of the conductors, has any concept of what 12-year-olds act like. 
When she's playing Susu, Susan tends to adopt the voice and vocabulary of a toddler or kindergartner, and most other people just kind of accept that as normal. When Philip first meets her, he asks if she knows the alphabet. Like, come on, she's 12, not 2. The movie itself does address this, though, through the character of Lucy Hill, played by Diana Lynn, Pamela's younger sister, who is actually around 12. The actress was really 15, but close enough. And sees through Susu instantly. When they're alone together for the first time, Susan tries to keep up her charade by admiring Lucy's goldfish. Look at the ones with the flopsy-wopsy tails! And the one sticking his nose up, he wants his din-din! Until Lucy can't take it anymore and says, Stop your baby talk. You're not 12 just because you're acting like 6. And it's like, Thank you! Finally someone said it! It kind of feels to me like this movie is trying to show how quickly many adults forget what it's really like to be young, and that it's supposed to be ridiculous that anybody believes that Susan is a child. I'm not sure if that was the actual intention of the filmmakers, but if you watch it through that lens, the movie makes a lot more sense. Even though she doesn't look or act anything like an almost 12-year-old, Ginger Rogers' performance is hands down my favorite aspect of this movie. As I've mentioned before, she's one of my faves, so I've seen and loved her in a ton of movies, and this is, in my opinion, her best performance. In some ways, it's similar to her role in Monkey Business in that she pretends to be younger than she is part of the time, but the difference is her Monkey Business character is under the influence of a formula that makes her truly believe she is young, whereas Susan Applegate knows she's pretending. As ridiculous as she seems to us, we can tell that she feels even more ridiculous. Susan doesn't want to act like a child, she just wants to get home, and Rogers conveys Susan's exasperation through Susu's smiles so well. Part of why she wanted to make this film, and perhaps part of why she's so convincing in this role, was because before she had become rich and famous, she had in fact lied about her age when traveling by train with her mother because they could only afford half fare. She probably wasn't quite as silly about it in real life, but it seems like her experience helped her find the truth amid the silliness. There's also the romantic aspect, which overall I don't think works particularly well. More on that in a bit. But I do think Ginger Rogers does an excellent job of portraying how much Susan cares for Philip and also how conflicted she feels about it, both because he's engaged to someone else and because she needs him to believe that she's way too young for him. The plot may be absurd, but the character of Susan is surprisingly layered and complex, and Ginger brings her to life in the best possible way, nailing every moment of her performance and making this movie far more enjoyable than it has any right to be. Of course, this was greatly aided by the script and directing, but that's partly thanks to Ginger Rogers as well. Billy Wilder had previously co-directed one film in France and had written quite a few screenplays, several in collaboration with Charles Brackett, but he had never directed a Hollywood film before. Rogers was a huge star at the time and had just won an Oscar, so she had the power to choose her directors, and after meeting with Wilder and hearing the pitch, she agreed that he was the right director for this project and thus began his extremely successful Hollywood directorial career. This is obviously one of his lesser-known films, but I feel like both the directing and writing are just as good as one would expect from a Billy Wilder film. While some of the storylines are very odd, most of the dialogue is excellent. 
Wilder and Brackett wrote the script with my main fave Cary Grant in mind for the role of Philip Kirby, but one evening Billy Wilder found himself stopped at a red light next to Ray Milland and asked him if he'd like to be in the new picture he was making, and Milland said sure, so Wilder sent him the script and he liked it, so he was cast instead. I would, of course, have loved to see Cary Grant in this film, but Milland did a great job, for the most part. There's a scene between him and Rogers when Philip is trying to explain the birds and the bees, or the light bulbs and the moths, to Susu, and it is incredibly awkward, and based on the words they're saying should be painful to watch, but both actors absolutely sell that cringe comedy, and it's one of my favorite scenes. But although the leads have excellent comedic chemistry, their romantic chemistry is basically non-existent. It kind of has to be, since for most of the movie he thinks she's a child and it would be really creepy if he showed romantic interest in her. I know that as an aromantic, I'm unusual in that I would like most movies better if they had less romance, but for this one in particular, I feel like it's reasonable to not want Philip and Susan to end up together that way. I do appreciate that his fiancée Pamela is a villain not merely because she stands in the way of the main characters getting together, as so often happens with love triangles, but because she's actively trying to sabotage Philip's military career behind his back. Notably, this movie takes place in May of 1941, so after the start of World War II but before Pearl Harbor, so there's lots of debate amongst the characters about whether the U.S. is going to enter the war. Of course, by the time it was filmed in early 1942, everybody knew the answer. Major Kirby wants to be part of the action if that happens, and the reason he's on the train when Susan meets him is because he's gone to Washington to try to get transferred away from the school to active duty. But Pamela doesn't want her man to go off to war, which is reasonable, but instead of talking to him about it, she writes letters behind his back to people in high places telling them how valuable he is in the job he doesn't like. So clearly it's not a very healthy relationship. Pamela's sister Lucy enlists Susan to help thwart Pamela's plans, which she does, and Philip gets the transfer he was hoping for. And that's great and all, but Susan didn't have to be in love with him to help him out. But apparently she is, and Pamela figures that out before she gets a chance to tell Philip, so Pamela forces Susan to leave, threatening to ruin Philip if she doesn't. The confrontation scene between the two women is pretty great. Both Ginger Rogers and Rita Johnson give excellent performances, and they seem like actual rational humans instead of breaking down into hysterical cattiness as too many movies would have forced them to do. At that point, I guess we do want Susan to end up with Philip, if only to spite Pamela. And I do love the scene when Philip shows up in Iowa on his way to report for duty on the West Coast. After trying and failing to explain the situation to her mother, played by Ginger Rogers' actual mother, Leela Rogers, Susan decides to pretend to be Susu's mother herself. It's a very funny scene, especially when Philip remarks on the astonishing resemblance between her and her daughter, and she earnestly states, Susu has her father's nose. Then Philip reveals that Pamela has married someone else, which prompts Susan to show up on the train platform dressed in age-appropriate clothes and using her normal voice, and let him know without using so many words that Susu was her the whole time, and then they go off to elope to Nevada. So, like, I guess that's okay, but it's still very weird. It's also very weird how all the cadets at the school are constantly hitting on Susu. Most of them seem to be around 14 to 16 years old, so if she was actually 12, that would be incredibly inappropriate. 
Although I guess nobody ever announces how old she's supposed to be, and she very much looks older than 12, so it's not entirely unreasonable for them to assume that she's about their age. But of course she's actually around 30 and finds it highly unpleasant to be hit on by teenagers. So calling this aspect weird is not a criticism of the movie, it's definitely aware of the weirdness. And to a certain extent, it feels like this movie is deliberately calling out male entitlement. The reason Susan decides to leave New York is because in the opening scene, she's trying to give a man a scalp massage and he will not stop hitting on her until she literally spreads raw egg all over his face. And then he's going to report her for being unprofessional after he was literally trying to sleep with her. Later, when she's pretending to be a child at the train station, she offers a man 50 cents to pretend to be her father and buy her ticket, but he takes three dollars from her and also tries to hit on her. She kicks him in the shin. Once she's at the academy, as she's eating lunch, she learns that the boys at her table have made a schedule so they each get to spend an hour with her, without giving her any say in the matter. Then the first one tricks her into a position so he can kiss her without her consent. The other boys are upset that she knows better than to let them do the same, and later the one who kissed her even has the audacity to be mad at her for running away without letting him kiss her again. Then there's a school dance when several of the students cross boundaries that she has to push back against. And even when she gets home to Stevenson, the man who wants to marry her throws a tantrum because she's clearly not into him anymore. When Philip calls to say he's in town, she assumes it's that guy, and as she goes to answer the phone, she's practicing apologizing, even though he was the one who threw a rock to break her porch light. It's like, no wonder she's interested in Philip, he's literally the only man who has ever respected her. Although in the awkward sex talk scene, Philip does say that attractive girls are like light bulbs and boys are like moths drawn to them, implying that they just can't help themselves and this is the way things are, which is rather irritating. So the sexual harassment could definitely have been more explicitly condemned, but for a movie written by men in 1942, the major and the minor does a remarkable job of portraying the crap that so many women are forced to regularly deal with because men think they're entitled to their bodies. This movie also does a surprisingly good job of portraying female friendship. Despite their significant age gap, Susan and Lucy quickly develop a very sweet bond. Lucy is a great character to begin with. She's observant and feisty and obsessed with biology, and I feel like she would make an excellent protagonist in some sort of junior mystery series. She's also quite jaded for someone so young, perhaps from growing up surrounded by teenage boys, and hates her sister, so she gets along perfectly with Susan. Since Lucy immediately sees through Susu, Susan has one person she can be herself around, which is helpful both to her and to the audience. They also make an excellent team when they come up with a plan to help Philip get his transfer. And then when Susan is forced to leave, Lucy tries desperately to find a way to help, saying, You're much more my sister than Pamela. Later, the reason Philip visits Susan and Stevenson is because Lucy made him promise to drop off a present from her to Susu, so she does find a way to help after all. I like to think that Lucy and Susan stay in touch after the events of the movie, and maybe Lucy even goes to live with Susan, and Philip, assuming he survives the war, to get away from her toxic sister. This movie is particularly fun to watch for Ginger Rogers fans, not only because she gives such an excellent performance, and because we get to see her mother's only on-screen appearance, but also because there are several jokes in the script that are only funny because Ginger Rogers is playing Susan. 
At this point, Rogers had made nine movies in which she danced with Fred Astaire, and although she had made many other films and had just won an Oscar for a non-dancing drama, dancing was, is, and shall always be what she's best known for. Which makes it very funny when Philip asks Susu if she can dance, and she responds with, a little. And when she's showing off dance steps to a cadet, and he replies with, adequate. These jokes remind me of my first introduction to Ginger Rogers as a child watching the 1965 Rogers and Hammerstein Cinderella, in which she plays the queen, on VHS at my grandparents' house. I distinctly remember one of the many times I watched it when the king asked, May I have this dance? And the queen replied, I was wondering when you were ever going to ask me. My mom explained that that actress was a famous dancer and that's why she said that. I didn't fully understand at the time, but now that I've seen all of her films with Fred, I get it. As fun as these jokes are, however, it is a little sad to me that even when she gets to play a kick-ass protagonist like Susan Applegate, she knew she'd always be thought of as Fred Astaire's partner. At least now people acknowledge that she did everything he did, but backwards and in high heels, thanks to a frequently quoted Frank and Ernest cartoon from 1982. Anyway, I'll talk more about Fred and Ginger in a future episode. As for the major and the minor, if you can get past the strangeness of the premise, it's an incredibly entertaining watch, with some decent and unfortunately still relevant commentary on how frustrating it can be to just exist with a female body in a patriarchal society. Thank you for listening to me discuss another of my most rewatched movies, and also Happy Pride Month! Remember to follow or subscribe for more episodes, and also remember that people on the aromantic and or asexual spectrum belong at Pride. The A does not stand for ally. I've got some fun guests lined up for the podcast later this month, but first I'll be talking on my own about another old film that isn't nearly as obscure as this one. As always, I will leave you with a quote from that next movie. I was born on the side of a hill.